Um, now, as some of you will know, uh, I'm married to Sarah, and we have four beautiful children between the ages of six and 13. And uh, here's a photograph of them now. Yeah, they're a lovely bunch most of the time. Um, I am, in essence, a typical father that will take any opportunity to crack what is commonly known as a dad joke, which usually results in our kids rolling their eyes and saying something like, Dad. So, for example, I remember a few years ago, I went to pick Caleb up from primary school, and uh, we decided to drive to our local Tesco to fill up on fuel. Now, Tesco was closed, and so we ended up driving to our local Morrison's. Now, the pay-at-the-pump method at Morrison's seems to be a lot quicker there than it is at Tesco. So much so that Caleb thought that I'd filled the car and forgot to pay as we were driving away. So I did what any good father would do in this situation, I'm sure. It was just too good an opportunity to be missed. So I was wearing a hoodie at the time. So I quickly put up my hood and I turned to Caleb and I said, quick, Caleb, hide your face and your school logo on your jumper just in case the CCTV cameras know which school you go to. Caleb gave me an elbow jab and said, dad, which was just an indication for me to keep going. So I said, listen, when you go to school tomorrow, if the police come and they say to you, were you recently at the Morrison's petrol station in a black car with a black man, just say no. <laughs> I said, listen, if they come and they show you a photograph of someone that looks like me, I said, glance at it for a few seconds and then move away and say, I've never seen that person before in my life. I said, on your way home from school, if it looks like the police are following you, take a detour, try and shake them off so that they don't find out where we live. And then when we got home in the car and I pulled over, I explained to Caleb eventually um, what had happened. But then I turned to Caleb and I said, Caleb, in fact, I forgot to say that Caleb actually turned to me and said, Dad, you lied. I said, well, it was actually a joke, sir. <laughs> I then turned to Caleb and I said, Caleb, is it ever okay to tell a lie? And he thought about it for a few seconds. And he said, yeah. I said, why do you think that? He said, well, if you knew someone was going to hurt you, if you told them the truth, then I think it's okay to tell a lie. Interesting. Kind of made me wonder what we're teaching our kids in Trent Youth. I'm just, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> but no, I turned to Caleb again. <laughs> I turned to Caleb again and I said, well, what do you think Jesus would think about this? And he said, he thought about it again and he said, I think Jesus would be all right with this. I said, well, why do you think that? He said, well, I don't think Jesus would want us to get hurt either. And that's quite a plausible answer, especially coming from a boy that was 10 years old at the time. So I turned to Caleb and I said, well, Jesus always spoke the truth and got hurt as a result of it. And I also tried to explain to him that Jesus placed a lot of importance and emphasis on the truth. And this is what I'd like to speak about this evening. So at this point, I'm just going to pray. And then we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. And then we're going to unpack this idea in a little bit more detail. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we can come before you this evening. 
and we just welcome your presence. Your word says that where two or three people are gathered, that you are there. And so, Father, we invite you to come this evening and speak truth into the depths of our souls. That truth, that life-transforming truth that will bring us into the people that you created us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there are three aspects of the truth that I'd like to look at this evening, as I believe that each one can bring us into a closer relationship with Jesus. And they are the truth in self, the truth with others, and of course, the truth with God. Which incidentally relates to our church vision for this year, which is, of course is for Jesus, for Nottingham, and for you. And if you're new to Trent this evening, you perhaps on your way in would have saw on the billboard this very um, um, advert. So, let's get into the truth with self, looking at John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, as some of you will know, I work at the Carpenter's Arms, which is a Christian drug and alcohol rehab for men. And I was recently speaking to a few of the guys there, and I was trying to explain to them that historically, people often hold a view of God as being this harsh judge that lays down a lot of rules and regulations that says you must do this or else. They have the perception that Christianity actually stands in the way of their freedom. And I try to explain to them that this really isn't who God is. I said the reason why he tells us not to use drugs and why he tells us not to sleep with different men or with different women is ultimately because it hurts us. Which father tells their child to place their hand in a fire or encourages them to deceive themselves and others? Not a very good one. I was explaining to them that I've been following Jesus now for a number of years and I am absolutely free. I'm free to use drugs and I'm free to sleep with different women. Although I'm sure my wife would quite rightly disagree with that. I said to them, I'm also free, though, to choose not to. And then I asked them all collectively, and I said to them, before you came into rehab, how free were you to choose to say no to using drugs? And they all said collectively, not free at all. I believe this is the freedom that Jesus was speaking about when he said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I'd like to ask us all that very same question this evening. How free are we to choose not to do, the, do those things that bring short-term pleasure, but often doesn't end very well? And it could be drug addiction, pornography, shopping, gambling. It could be a number of things for a number of different people. Freedom is a choice. But if we can't action what we choose, then it's not really freedom at all. I believe God created us to be free. I also believe life is a gift from God to be enjoyed now 
not just in eternity when we die. But if we don't take steps to become free, we will remain in bondage until the day we die. So, you may be here this evening and you may be thinking, this all sounds great, Dave. But how? How do we become free? Well, I believe it starts with us being truthful with ourselves. Someone once said, the truth will set us free, but it first tends to make us miserable. The truth hurts and sometimes brings disappointment to all of us. But the good news is, through what Jesus did, through coming to earth and dying for us, he's shown us how we can obtain true freedom. Now, I just want to part this idea just for a moment to return to it shortly, because I believe it's impossible to speak about truth without speaking about grace. The two walk and are hand in hand. And there's a scripture that attests to this in John chapter 1, verse 14. The word Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son of God, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. In other words, when the word Jesus became flesh or a human being and lived among us, he came to us filled with grace and filled with truth. And so then, you might well ask, what exactly is God's grace? God's grace is God's love and undeserved favor for all people. It's God's love in action towards people whose behavior and actions deserved God's judgment. The time we appear to be most unlovable is the time we most need love. And if I may, I'm going to say that again. The time we appear to be most unlovable is the time we most need love. From the thief, to the addict, to the prostitute, to the murderer, to the slanderer, to the liar. Right now, there's probably a number of you that are thinking of others that could really benefit from God's grace. I can certainly think of a few. But I was actually referring to you, me, us. There was a time recently when our youngest daughter, Cora, made a deliberate mistake. She woke up one morning and went to put toothpaste on her toothbrush. But it would appear that the whole tube of toothpaste ended up in the sink. And Cora's response to that was, oops, dad. I've accidentally put too much toothpaste on my toothbrush. Now, this was first thing in the morning, so I was slightly frustrated, as I'm sure you can appreciate, especially as it wasn't an accident. And then, out of nowhere, an angel appeared in the form of her sister, Eden. And she came into the bathroom shaking her head, and she said, that's not good, is it, Dad? almost as if to say that she would never do anything like that. The reality is, we're not too dissimilar to Cora and Eden, especially when we deliberately choose to make a poor decision or we judge others as though we are better than they are. No one needs God's grace more than anyone else. 
We all need it in equal measure. I need it daily. Just ask my wife. But I wonder this evening if you're in need of God's grace. I wonder if you're in need of God's grace for others. Jesus is full of grace and full of truth for each and every one of us, no exceptions. And as we unpack truth this evening, I'd like us to keep this in mind. So let's get back to the truth in self. I believe one of the reasons we struggle to be truthful with ourselves and look inward is because we often don't like what we see. There's often shame, embarrassment, and resentment lurking beneath the surface. However, if we are not honest with ourselves, we cannot expect to learn and grow as individuals because we aren't willing to recognize reality for what it is. I read a quote recently which said, most people don't see things as they are. They see things as they are. This effectively stifles our growth in God. It's a little like looking in a mirror and seeing what we want to see instead of seeing what is. We see this in the stories in the Gospels in the New Testament. There are many. Jesus never had an issue with those people that were honest in their shortcomings and recognized their need for his grace. But he always had an issue with those religious people that were quick to judge others when they themselves were no better. 2,000 years before modern psychology, Jesus made this statement. He said, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. As part of my role at the Carpenter's Arms, I counsel the guys there on the program. And uh, one day, one of the residents came to me and said, Dave, very reluctantly, I've got something to tell you. He said, one of the other residents said that he thinks that you're up your own backside. In fact, he didn't use the word backside. He used a very different word, which perhaps isn't appropriate to share this evening. And now, ordinarily, I would have perhaps hauled that resident into my office to give him a good dressing down. But on this occasion, what I chose to do was openly reflect and process the words that I'd heard. And I started by asking myself the question, is this true? Because it's not beyond the realms of possibility. I started to search myself and I asked God and said, God, is this really true? And I landed on, no, it isn't. But I recognized that I'd recently been given a promotion and so my work attire had changed. I'd been given more responsibility so I could understand why this resident might, may, may think the way that he did. And so the next time I saw that resident, I genuinely and intentionally made an effort to be even more friendly to him than normal. Now before you all think that I'm perfect and I've got this all sorted, I can assure you I've made many mistakes since then. In fact, in preparing this talk, I went to my wife and I asked her, to share some of those mistakes with me so that I could share them with you. That was quite silly, I'm sure. <laughs> but actually, what she said to me was, I can't think of any because I don't actually keep a list of them. Isn't that just a fantastic response? 
The reality is, I could probably write a 10-part sermon on all the mistakes that I've made, because there are many. But it's my understanding of God's grace and his truth that keeps me going when I make those mistakes and I get it wrong. Our walk, our spiritual journey with Jesus is literally like a father teaching a child how to walk. When a child takes their first steps, they usually fall over. And when that happens, you never hear the father say, you stupid, pathetic little child. What do you call that, walking? You never hear those words. But instead, what you do hear is, up you get. Come on, let's try again. You can do it. Come on, you can do it. You can do it. The truth is, that child will learn to walk, even though they've fallen over. And the grace is the love and the compassion and the encouragement that the father shows that child. This is how Jesus responds to us when we get it wrong and we make mistakes. But it requires us to be truthful and honest with ourselves. It's learning to live in the truth of who we really are as well as who we will become. I believe looking inwards and being truthful with ourselves helps us to look outward, to see things and people as they really are. Which brings us to our next point, which is the truth with others. And this is quite an abrupt scripture, but I think it helps to make the point. Ephesians 4:25. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth for we are all parts of the same body. In today's society, one of the things we tend to struggle with is to form deep and meaningful relationships. As many of our relationships tend to be superficial, we often present a persona which is a shadow of who we really are. The word persona is actually a Greek word which literally means a stage mask worn by an actor to hide their identity. When I worked in education, I had a desire to become an assistant head teacher. My persona and my self-image that I projected caused me to behave as though I was one, even though I hadn't become one. And this is what our personas do. They cause us to behave in a way in which we not really are. And that's the same for all of us. As we know, children can be cruel and sometimes judge other children solely by the trainers they wear on their feet. These children grow to become adults that judge other adults for a whole host of reasons, ranging from their economic status to the car we drive, even down to the color of our hair, if you have hair that is. <laughs> Being judged by others makes us feel like we're not good enough. And as a church, as the vineyard, we have a responsibility to make this a safe place where we can be truthful and honest with each other without scorn and without judgment. And there's a scripture that attests to this in Romans chapter 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide to never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother 
or sister. Our judgments of each other are a hindrance to us being truthful with one another. The truth is, in our culture, our culture places a lot of emphasis on looking good, being the best, or at least one of the best. Keeping up with the latest and striving to be known as normal can be quite overwhelming at times. And this applies to children as well as adults. I believe it's these things that can cause many of us to sink into depression and sometimes even suicide. I read a quote recently by the author Richard Raw in his book, Breathing Underwater, and it said, we cannot stop the drowning waters of our addictive culture from rising, but we must at least see our reality for what it is, seek to properly detach from it and build a coral castle and learn to breathe underwater. So how do we do this? How do we learn to breathe underwater? How do we become truthful with others? I believe it starts by removing the persona mask. I believe it starts with us seeking to develop deep and meaningful relationships. In January last year, John Wright did a fantastic talk called Thriving or Surviving. And at the start of that talk, he asked the question, how are you doing? It's a fantastic talk. If you haven't seen it, I'd encourage you to go online and uh, to look back on it. How are you doing? We as a society have become accustomed to churning out catchphrases to this very same question, such as, I'm fine, yeah, not too bad, and the classic deflector, I'm good, thanks, how are you? We often do this instinctively without thinking. Now, sometimes it's not appropriate to go into too much detail on how we're doing. For example, uh, a mother's in Tesco and their child's throwing a tantrum and then you go along and you ask them, and, and how are you doing? Perhaps not the best time to ask the question. Or, I don't know how this works for ladies, but guys, if you're in the toilet and someone's going into a cubicle, perhaps not the best time to ask the question. <laughs> However, I think if we allow ourselves to be vulnerable and ask these questions, it allows other people to do the same. John, in his talk, mentioned having a spiritual director and a psychotherapist that would ask him challenging questions about his spiritual journey and his emotional journey. Now, the reality is we can't all have spiritual directors or psychotherapists, but we can seek out wise and discerning people and give them permission to ask challenging questions about our spiritual journey. And I think a good place to start, as John mentioned earlier, is by joining a small group if you haven't already. And if you are already a part of a small group, maybe it's about finding like-minded people that are on the same journey as you and giving them permission to ask those challenging questions about your spiritual and emotional journey and have that reciprocated. Creating space to allow others to be truthful with us without criticism and judgment allows us to lower the mask to the world around us, therefore allowing us to breathe underwater and be truthful with others. 
Now, everything I've said about being truthful with self and being truthful with others all hinges on this last and final point. If we don't grasp this point, everything I've said will not become a reality in our lives. The reality is we don't stand much of a chance being truthful with ourselves and with others if we first can't be truthful with God. Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. If you haven't read the whole of Psalm 139, I'd like to encourage you to do so. It's a beautiful and reflective psalm, which is key in helping us get to a place where we can be truthful with God. So how do we do this? How do we become truthful with God? I believe it's through what's known as the spiritual disciplines of silence and solitude. And I think it's important to pause here just for a moment to say that this really isn't about personality types. I believe introverts and extroverts among us need this in our lives because it, it provides a safe place where we can go before God and be fully known in his presence. The theologian Henry Nouwen says it like this, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and listen to him. In the world today, we have more distractions than ever before. There is always something fighting for our attention. But when we consider the people in the Bible and how they developed their relationship with God, it was always through the practice of silence and, and, and um, solitude. Jesus himself would often withdraw alone to go and spend time with God. To do this in this day and age is quite a challenge. It requires discipline. Silence and solitude are practices that are incredibly simple to do. Yet in the busyness of life, they can be incredibly difficult to practice. The idea is that we go to him with no agenda other than emptying ourselves of our own importance to allow him, if he chooses, to speak to us. God is real. And he desires to be in an intimate relationship with each and every one of us. In this technological age, we have an app for just about everything. From shopping, to banking, to entertaining cats. It's true. But we don't have, and we will never have, an app that can bring us into a closer, deeper, more intimate relationship with God. Any good and successful relationship is always built on truth. And that's because God designed it that way, starting with his son, Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Now, having said all of that, I think it's only right that we practice the spiritual discipline of silence right now, especially as we'd be hard-pressed to practice solitude in a room this size full of people. You don't have to be a Christian to do this either. There were people in the Bible that did this a long time before Christ walked on the earth. And so very similar to the two-minute silence that we have on a Remembrance Sunday, we're going to be silent for three minutes, which represents the Trinity in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I understand that this can be quite a challenge for some of us because being still for any length of time can be quite challenging. You know, sometimes we stand in a queue and the first thing that we do is we reach for our mobile device. We're sat on a bus and we want to get out our phones and check social media because being alone for, by ourselves can be quite challenging. But practicing this is the only way we can be really known by God. And we can really connect with God on an intimate level. During this time, I want to encourage you to empty your mind of these pressing things, anything that's pressing. It's through the emptying of our minds that we create space to hear that still, small voice of God speaking truth into our souls for us to authentically be true and honest to him. I think it's important to add as well that if you fall asleep in your time of silence, that's okay too. That might be what God had intended for you. I want to share with you as well. Recently, um, I often get up early in the morning to go for a run. And recently, uh, I got up to go for a run and I put on all my clothes. This was about quarter to five in the morning. And as I was about to go through the door, I heard God speak in my spirit and say, don't run today. I want you to come and sit with me. And so I did. And I sat with God for half an hour. And you know what God said? He said, absolutely nothing. He said nothing. And if I'm honest, I became a little bit perturbed. Because I thought, did I hear God right? Because I could have gone on a run this morning and that would have been more fulfilling. So I thought. And that put a downer on my day. And God spoke to me throughout the day through many different people and situations. And he said to me, Dave, I just wanted you to come and sit with me. No agenda, just come and be in my presence. And that evening I received a text from a colleague and he said, Dave, you've been on my mind and I've been praying for you and I felt God was telling me to say to you that he wants you to rest in him because that's where your strength comes from. I'd also like to encourage anyone that's listening by a podcast or watching online, or maybe you're in a small group and you're watching this session. And at the end of that time of this three minutes of silence, it might be worth sharing with the people around you what you feel God might be saying to you or to others. So I'm going to quote a few words from the Bible, and then we're going to enter into a time of silence for three minutes. Be still 
and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still.